Now hear God's holy word from Luke chapter 24. Pay close attention. This is the very word of God. Now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened, as they were greatly perplexed about this, that behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Then, as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. Then they returned from the tomb and told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. It was Mary Magdalene. Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other with them, who told these things to the apostles. And their words seemed to them like idle tales, and they did not believe them. But Peter arose and ran to the tomb, and stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying by themselves, and he departed, marveling to himself at what had happened. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for these incredible, marvelous, unimaginable, unbelievable, uh, amazing events that we read about and we rejoice and we sing of on this day. And so, Father, help me to articulate these things clearly. By your Spirit, guide us into this time of thinking about and remembering and rejoicing in the resurrection of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our nearest kinsman. Amen. Amen. What are some of the things you typically think about when you contemplate or remember the resurrection of the Lord Jesus? If I could have a big whiteboard here and we could spend 10 or 15 minutes listing all of the words that come to mind when you think about Easter, when you think about the celebration or the events of the resurrection of Jesus. I imagine some of the answers you would come up with, uh, we, we could cover the board with words like eternal life, glory, redemption, uh, rebirth, revival, victory over death, defeat of the serpent, defeat of the grave, uh, hope, salvation, uh, uh, inexpressible joy. And, and in the midst of all of these things, it's also impossible for us to think about Easter and our celebration of the resurrection without thinking about all those things that go along with it. Uh, nice new clothes, usually in pastel colors, uh, uh, Easter baskets, uh, whatever you're fixing later today to enjoy. The Rogers are having prime rib and they may have a few extra spots. Marion told me that this morning. I'm just letting you know as a service, public service announcement. <laughs> You've got good things waiting at home for you. You've got good things to, good things to eat. I know the little ones think about chocolate bunnies and Cadbury cream eggs and marshmallow peeps. All the glory of the resurrection is just, is just concentrated in a marshmallow peep, isn't it? It's all, it's all there. If you just contemplate that, it's all there. Now, some of you would name these things. You know, it's not unspiritual and it's not, it's not carnal to think this way. We have rightly created a great culture of feasting and rejoicing around the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. There's a lot of merrymaking around it, and that's right. There's nothing wrong with that. So it's great that your thoughts about the resurrection of Jesus are joined to thoughts about happy times and, and good wine and good food and, and marshmallow 
chickens. Jesus wants it that way. Jesus wants you to rejoice in his resurrection. But one word I think that wouldn't end up on our board, one word I, I, I'm confident that no one would come up with because I wouldn't initially come up with this word. One word that we put up, wouldn't put up with there, uh, put up there is fear or confusion or distress. Uh, and, and when I say fear, I'm not just talking about overcoming fear, but I'm talking about fear itself. Would you put the word grief on that board? If I were to ask you, what do you think of? We may not put those words on the board, but when it comes to the gospel accounts of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, confusion, grief, fear are the words that are used to describe the people's initial response to the resurrection of Jesus. Now, we're not just talking about random men on the street. We're talking about the women who serve right alongside Jesus throughout his ministry. We're talking about his disciples, his friends. When they come to the tomb, they are initially afraid, confused, and fearful. And when, the, when the, they go back to tell others, the, the whole scene is shrouded in anxiety. And when we read these first 12 verses of, of Luke's gospel, if we, as we've marched through Luke's gospel to get to this point on, on Easter Sunday, Who's not there in the first 12 verses in that first initial account of the resurrection? Jesus isn't there. We, we see Jesus later when Luke uh, delivers this account, though. Jesus is conspicuously absent. All four Gospels tell us that Jesus came out of the grave, but none of the Gospels describe it happening because no one was there. No one saw him come out of the grave. Later they know, and they see the risen Lord, they know it's him, and they know what has happened. But by the time the women get there on this Sunday morning, the grave is open, the stone is rolled away, and Jesus is entirely absent. And Luke is making a point here, and there's a reason that the Holy Spirit orchestrates the history this way, is because Jesus is gone physically, bodily. He's not there. His word is there. His angels are there. His friends and disciples are there right in the middle of this confusing situation. And here they are without Jesus physically, bodily present, and they are yet supposed to. They are called to believe. They're called to trust. They're called to have, they're called to have faith in Jesus, even though he's not there. They are being forced to exercise their faith in Jesus in the absence of his bodily presence. And, and that's what the angels exhort these women to remember. This is all very intentional. It's very deliberate. There's a battle of faith going on here. Are we going to believe what Jesus has said, even though when we look around, things don't look exactly like we expected them to look? That's the question that is being pressed upon these women here and upon the disciples quickly after that. You don't see Jesus. Things are not exactly the way you expected them to turn out. Are you still going to believe him? Are you still going to trust him? That's the question that's being presented here. You're going to remember what he said and you're going to trust his word. Here's another interesting angle to the way that all the gospel writers, they speak in different ways um, about disbelief and fear, especially in those closest to Jesus when it comes to the reality of the resurrection. And it causes us to pause and think for just a moment, if they were making all of this up, if they were just fabricating this out of thin air, or they were trying to put together some tall tale or some allegory, wouldn't you write this in such a way that all of the women who come to the tomb and the disciples soon after instantly worship? Wouldn't, if you're fabricating this, wouldn't you make it so that they have 
no questions, that, that they just instantly bow down and worship and say, oh yes, this is exactly what we expected. This is what we were looking for. In fact, even more than that, if they were making this up, women would not be the initial witnesses to these events. Women would not be those who first tell about the resurrection. Because as you know, in the ancient world, women's thoughts and women's opinions were generally not respected. Women were not credible witnesses in court, for example. So that's right out. If they were fabricating this, they would not make women those who first saw the, uh, the empty tomb. Uh, I guess that they might have written the story in such a way that the men get there first and maybe fabricate some testimony from some Romans or outside sources. And if Luke in particular were making this up, he would make the apostles these heroes of the faith. These, these models of the, of the church boldly leading the church into the future without any doubt, without any fear, without any question. But none of that is in the text. None of, that, none of that boldness is here. None of that courage is here because none of that was true. Human weakness and doubt and perplexity and confusion are what's all over the text. And so if anybody asks you to write those words on the board at some point, maybe you should say confusion, fear, anxiety, worry. Now let's walk through these few uh, verses today. And we're only going to look at the first 12 verses uh, this morning. It's the first day of the week, we find, as we open chapter 24. It's Sunday morning. It's very early in the morning when the women come to the tomb to finish the work of preparing the body of Jesus for burial. Uh, a little bit of history. I don't know many of you know this because you're, you're well-versed and you've studied the ancient world, but just as a refresher, tombs in the ancient world were hewn out of rock. I mean, they were, they were literally a cave that you, you carve out of the side of a hill or out of the side of a mountain. So there is space inside of a hill or inside of a mountain with a shelf or a low table on which you would lay your deceased loved one. You would, you would spread the body there, and then there were certain customs uh, of burial that were followed that showed honor to the body of your loved one. They would anoint the body with special spices. They would, they would wrap it up, and then they would close the mouth of the tomb. And when the next person in your family passed away, you would reopen the tomb, you would collect all the bones of the previously deceased, and you would, you would put them in a jar, and you'd set it aside, and then you would spread uh, the, the newly deceased out on that shelf, and, and then repeat the process there. You remember back in Genesis when Jacob is dying, at the very end of, of Genesis, uh, Jacob dies and they have this long, they go through this elaborate process to preserve the body of Jacob in Egypt. Remember, Jacob dies in Egypt and then they carry him back to Canaan. And where do they bury him? They bury him in the, in the cave of Machpelah where Abraham and Sarah, it was, the, it was the grave of Sarah initially, but Sarah was buried there and Abraham and Isaac and Rebekah and Leah were already buried in that cave. It was a, it was a family grave. It was a family tomb. And that was the process that they used. So that was the custom ordinarily. Now, what's different about Jesus? Well, in the case of crucifixion, the Romans would order typically that the body of the accused, the body of the condemned would hang on the cross forever. That they wouldn't take it down. That the uh, corruption decay would happen there on the cross and you, you don't touch the body. It stays there as a symbol to everybody that this is what happens when you mess with Rome. So if you're coming through here, you know you're in Roman territory. You know 
whose land you're in because you see bodies hanging from crosses. And if you want to mess up, if you want to mess around, if you want to, if you want to fool around, that's what, that's what happens. And so they didn't really typically want the body to be taken down. They wouldn't grant a burial, certainly. That's why Joseph of Arimathea, we didn't get to spend time on this uh, Friday night, but at the end of that passage we read, Joseph of Arimathea goes to Pilate and he begs for the body of Jesus to be taken down and Pilate grants him that wish and, and uh, Joseph of Arimathea takes the body and he, he, he uh, assigns uh, the women, he, he delegates to them the responsibility of putting the body in his own family grave that he had just dug out himself and certainly at great expense and at great pains uh, he had taken to have this new grave for his family. So by the time all of this takes place, it's, it's the day of the crucifixion. All of this takes place on Friday. It's getting dark. The Sabbath is about to begin. You can't do this work on the Sabbath. So they have to hurry, get the body off the cross, get Jesus's body into the grave, do what you can but then come back Sunday morning to finish the work. You have to come back after the Sabbath is over. The Sabbath begins on the evening and it goes all the way to the next evening. So it's early, early, early on Sunday morning when the Sabbath is over at first light, they come out to finish the work that they started. Now, isn't it interesting here, just as an aside, just as a footnote, how Jesus' disciples are following the law, right? They're, they're obeying and they're honoring the Sabbath when all the accusations of the Jews is that Jesus is a lawbreaker and he's teaching his people to break the law. When here, Jesus' people are following the law. They're being obedient. Who's breaking the law here? Well, certainly those who conspired together to kill an innocent man. They're, they're breaking the law. And that's a, that's a subtext. Jesus' people are not the lawbreakers. They're not the rebels. Now, early on Sunday morning, it's the first opportunity that these women have since the crucifixion, since Friday night. It's the first opportunity to come and finish honoring the body of Jesus and preparing it for, for burial. They come with their spices, but when they get to the tomb, they found out that they don't need them. They don't need anything that they brought. They get to the tomb and the stone is rolled away. Now, of course, if a, if a grave is this cave that you carve out, you've got to put something over the mouth of the cave to keep wild animals out. You don't want grave robbers going in there. You don't want anybody messing around. So it would take a couple of men to roll a heavy block or a heavy rock over the mouth of the cave. The women get there on Sunday morning and they find out that's gone and the grave is, is wide open. You know how when you see something strange or unbelievable or you, you see something odd, it takes time for your brain to process what's going on. These women are, 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 are stymied. They're going into sensory overload. They don't have categories for this new information they're taking in. And they're trying to put all this together. Now, what do you think when you come up on the grave and it's open? You came here to finish this work. What's going on? Did somebody mess with the grave? Did somebody violate the body of Jesus? Have, have vandals come along? What's, what's going on? What's happening here? So they go into the cave to see if Jesus' body is still there, and they see that the grave is empty. It's completely empty because it's never been used before. There are no other bones. There's nobody else in there. The grave is completely empty. And now Luke says they were greatly perplexed. The word that he chooses there is, is um, a, a way of saying that they are completely at a loss. They had no explanation. There is, there's no way that they can put any of this together. 
And then suddenly, in the middle of their confusion, appears two men in shining garments, angels. And now the women are really afraid. They bow their faces to the earth. And the angels give them this gentle rebuke. The angels say, you're looking for Jesus. Why are you looking for Jesus in a graveyard? Why are you looking for the living among the dead? The graveyard is the last place you need to be looking for him because he isn't here. He is risen. And they say, don't you remember he said that this would happen? That he would be delivered into the hands of sinful men, that he would be crucified, and the third day he would rise again? The, the, the angels are communicating back to them what Jesus has said. By the way, this is a good place to stop for just a moment and talk about the question that gets raised from time to time. Because uh, you, you tend to think, well, if Jesus was um, crucified on Friday, and if he spent three nights in the tomb, Friday night, Saturday night, wait a minute, Sunday, that's, that's not, there's not enough nights in there. So maybe, and I've heard this said before, well, maybe he was crucified on a Thursday. Maybe that's how that all works out. So he's crucified on a Thursday, and then, and then uh, he, he's, uh, he comes out of the grave on Sunday. But remember, he wasn't crucified on a Thursday. How do we know that? Because it was the day before the Sabbath, they had to get ready for the Sabbath and they couldn't uh, do anything more. So Jesus was crucified on Friday. So, so how does this work? Um, and then women come on the first day of the week, so we know the resurrection was on Sunday morning. So if the crucifixion was most certainly on a Friday and the resurrection was most certainly on a Sunday, how does, how does all this work? Well, we, somehow we got it in our heads and we're thinking that Jesus spent three nights in the tomb. We're, we're not told that. We're not told that Jesus spends three nights in the tomb. In Matthew's gospel, when Jesus talks about the sign of Jonah, Jesus says, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, is the tomb the heart of the earth or is the heart of the earth something else? Jesus enters Jerusalem on Thursday, remember, just to kind of lay out the timeline. Jesus enters Jerusalem on a Thursday. He eats with the disciples. He, he, uh, he eats Passover and institutes his supper, the Lord's Supper. He's arrested Thursday night, and he's in the custody of the priest guard, and the priest guard mocks him, and they taunt him all night. Uh, the grave isn't the heart of the earth. Jerusalem is the heart of the earth. This is when Jesus enters into the belly of the whale. This is his first night in the heart of the earth. This is uh, Jerusalem, if you'll, if you'll think of it this way, Jerusalem is center stage. Jerusalem is the focus of all of God's mighty acts to save the world. Jesus enters the heart of the earth on, on, on Thursday. He's tried and crucified on Friday. His body rests on the Sabbath, Saturday. And then he comes out of the grave Sunday morning, the morning of the resurrection, the first day of the new creation. So he spends, as Jonah was in the belly of the whale, three days and three nights. So Jesus is three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He goes into this time of testing and torment, the, the belly of the beast, so to speak, when he's arrested on Thursday night. And this, is, um, this, this also works with the angel's timeline. What the angel just said, he says... He's delivered into the hands of sinful men. That was Thursday night. He's crucified on Friday. And the third morning, he's delivered. I'm sorry, the third morning after he's delivered into the hands of sinful men, he rises again. So, so listen again to what the angels say in verse 7. <clears throat> the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. The third day after what? The third day after being delivered into the hands of sinful men, right? 
Uh, that, that seems to be the most consistent way to think about it. Well, the larger point that the angels are making here is that, that they're reminding these women who, remember, they're some of the people closest to Jesus. He, these angels remind these women what Jesus said and how he told them that all this was going to happen. And when the angels repeat the words of Jesus to them, these women remember. It all makes sense. It all, it all clicks. And then they rush back to the remaining 11 apostles and they, they want to tell them what they've seen and what has happened. And there we get that roster of the faithful women in verse 10. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the other with them, uh, the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. Now, I said earlier, just a minute ago, that women were not thought to be reliable witnesses, and that's exactly, sadly, unfortunately, that's exactly how the apostles treat them. In verse 11, how do the apostles receive their testimony? And their words seemed to them like idle tales. And they did not believe them. The apostles dismissed the testimony of the women with the back of their hand. The men are not impressed. They think these emotional, hysterical women have seen something that they can't explain. And they're just making up stories to put it all together. But it was on purpose that God's revelation was to women, just as Mary and Elizabeth are the first to rejoice over the virgin birth at the beginning of the gospel. So now women are first to believe the resurrection of Jesus because women were discredited and dishonored and disregarded in that culture. It's in the church that woman is elevated and respected and valued. The way that the Holy Spirit orchestrates these events is a rebuke on the arrogance of these men. And, and, the, and their disbelief is not a good look. This, this, this is not uh, 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 honorable for Peter to behave this way and the other apostles as well. But the bottom line is, Peter doesn't believe. The other disciples don't believe. <clears throat> Here's the thing about unbelief. Refusing to believe God's word or refusing to believe a specific thing in God's word, be it the creation, the flood, the virgin birth, the resurrection. Refusing to believe these things doesn't mean that you believe in nothing. You are never liberated from religion. You are never liberated from theology. Everyone, everyone has a religion. Everyone has a theology. You have a set of beliefs about God. You have a theology. Unbelief doesn't mean you believe in nothing. It means you believe in something else more strongly. In the unbelief that we see here, it's, it's not that they believe in nothing. It's just that they believe in other things more than what Jesus has said. They, they just believe in something else more strongly. And what they believe is there is a natural order that cannot be violated. Once you die, you're dead. And that's just the way it is. When you're dead, you're dead. And they believed also that Jesus couldn't accomplish what he said he was going to do. Maybe he was speaking in, in parables. Maybe he was, he was saying something mysterious that we couldn't figure out. But we don't believe that he really meant it literally. But so so don't, don't ever think that, that we can we can shed this thing called belief or we can shed this thing called religion or faith. You are created as a worshiper and as a worshiper, you are going to worship something. You are going to believe something. There is no neutrality ever. And, and if you think these accounts, especially the account of the resurrection of Jesus, if you think this is all so unbelievable, if you just think this is so incredible that it's not worth your time, do you expect the solution to death 
and suffering and darkness? Do you expect the solution? Do you expect the uh, defeat of the grave to be something so obvious? Something you could come up with on your own? Something that would cut right with the grain of everything that you know? Something you could fit in your own boxes and categories? Or if death and the grave and darkness and suffering are going to be defeated, it's going to be done in such a way that you could never have imagined. So far out of reality that it blows all of your categories away. Something to ponder. Now Peter is processing all this. All this disbelief, all this fear and confusion. As Peter goes to the tomb, he stoops down... And he sees the grave clothes lying by themselves. And he departs. And Luke says he's marveling at what happened. Now, again, you get the sense that he hasn't fully embraced what has happened. Peter doesn't go away rejoicing. He doesn't go away skipping. He goes away scratching his head. We know that Jesus has some unfinished business with Peter. But, but let's, let's now meditate on the story and, and try to absorb it. Why is there so much perplexity and confusion and fear on this first Easter morning. And why do the gospel writers underscore all of this? Why is this the story? The most amazing, breathtaking, remarkable, stupendous, phenomenal thing just happened. Jesus has gone through the grave. Jesus has conquered death. Jesus has defeated Satan and his minions. God overturned the guilty verdict that the Romans and the Jewish uh, courts and the people laid against Jesus. God overturned that verdict and he vindicated him. He vindicated Jesus by declaring him innocent and righteous and them guilty. And now, because Jesus is alive, we have life. We don't have to fear death or darkness or the grave. We have nothing to fear from Satan. Satan mustered all of his forces. He tried to put the Son of God to death with everything he had in his power, everything he had in his storehouse. He tried to kill the Son of God, but he failed. When Satan tried to kill God's Son, it didn't take. Jesus came back from the grave because the grave couldn't hold him. All of this is true. And we could go on and on and all of it's true. And yet, on the morning when all of this is first revealed, Jesus' closest friends are grieving instead of rejoicing. Why is that? Why? They're confused and they're grieving because they forgot the words of Jesus. In the absence of the physical presence of Jesus, what you and I have is his word. We have his spirit. We have the sacraments. We're used to living without the physical bodily presence of Jesus, right? We're used to this. But they... They were for the first time figuring out what does it mean to follow Jesus with him not physically here? And what they needed to be reminded of were his words, his story. They were confused, in fact, because they had lost their place in the story. Have you ever been reading a novel and you're you know, making some headway and then for whatever reason you stick a bookmark in it and you don't pick it up for several days, maybe a week, maybe more? And you go to try to pick it up and get back into it. And you start reading and these characters. Who, who was this? I don't remember. What it, what's going on here? I don't remember any of this. And then you have, you're exasperated. You have to go back maybe several chapters and start reading it over to pick up. And then when you get back to that point, you say, oh, okay. Now everything makes sense. I find that I know where my place is now in the story. Maybe you've done that with a movie. You've hit pause 
I started watching a movie last weekend and things came up and I hit pause, I turned it off, and I haven't gone back to it. And I know when I hit play, I'm going to have no idea what's going on. I'm not, I'm going to lose, my, I'm going to have to start over. All that time, I'm going to have to start the whole thing over. You lose your place in the story and you don't know what's going on. You don't know, nothing makes sense. You don't know who the characters are. You don't catch the flow. That's what has happened to these women and the disciples. They had to be reminded, okay, where are we in the story? Who are we? What's happening now? And you know what? It's still possible. You and I can lose our place in God's story when we're ignorant of his words. When the scriptures are not in us, when they're not a part of us, like these words, we're, we're not really ringing in their heads this morning uh, when they came to the tomb. When, when the scriptures are not ringing in our ears, it doesn't provide for us a, a framework by which we understand the world because we're getting our framework from somewhere else, either the talking heads on the news or websites or, you know, there are people whose entire view of the world is, is shaped by Facebook memes and by, you know, uh, three-second videos on the internet. That's their entire, you can put together their entire ethos by just looking at these things. <clears throat> and we do that and we ignore the scriptures and if, and if we do that, we find ourselves in a very different story. We're living in a different world. We lose our place and we forget who we are and where we are. But then when God speaks, and God speaks through his word, and he speaks in the sacrament, and he speaks through his Holy Spirit, when we're pulled back into the story, we're pulled back by the words of Jesus, as the angels did with these women, we find our place in the story. We remember what Jesus has said, and we find that we can summarize the, uh, summarize the story. We find out that our story is all about victory, that death and darkness and the grave don't get the last word. Now, I don't doubt that these women and the apostles believed in the resurrection. They certainly did believe in the resurrection. Remember back at Lazarus' grave, uh, Jesus tells Martha, your brother will rise again. And what does Martha say? She says, yeah, yeah, I know, I know. At the last day, when everyone is resurrected, my brother will rise again. They, they knew God's promise that, that he would bring life out of death. They knew God's promises that he would conquer the grave. They believe in the promise of eternal life. But they couldn't imagine that what God was going to do with the saints at the end of history could happen now in the middle of history. That what God intended to do at the very end of things was now informing and coloring and changing everything that was going on now in the middle of history. So they had the ideas right. They had the set of, of, of theology, but it just wasn't changing their perspective on what was going on that morning because... What they didn't have, they had, the, they had the ideas, they had the theology. What they didn't have was their place in the story. Moms and dads, this, this shows us something, doesn't it? It shows us that we need to give our kids more than just good content for their brains, which we must do absolutely. Don't hear me saying we don't need to give them good content for their heads. We must give them good content. But they also need formation in the habits, in the liturgies, in the story of life that God has given us in, in this world that, that needs to be lived out. It needs to be seen and participated in. And these habits get into us. They, they need more than a set of thoughts because, you see, in the middle of a situation like this, the thoughts aren't there. What do they need? Well, they need habits and the habits that would drive them to remember the story. 
So it was all very theoretical for them. Again, in the category, this was like religion that we can set aside, but doesn't really have impact on, on our lives. But when they find their place in the story, they see, oh yeah, okay, yeah, this is the real world. This is the world where Jesus wins, where life wins, where light wins, where darkness, death, and the grave are defeated. This is reality. The world of unbelief is the world of make-believe. And so because this resurrection is true, the resurrection of our Lord Jesus, because it happened, because Jesus, who overcame the capital D death, who defeated the capital D darkness, because this Jesus defeated these things, you can know and you can trust that he will defeat any other forms of death and darkness you encounter. If Jesus was delivered from death, you can be too. And you can be also resurrected from any smaller forms of death and darkness that you come into contact with. You can go boldly and bravely and courageously into the dark places, to the brink of the grave, to do battle there with Satan, because you know that Jesus brings life and resurrection out of the dead and dark places with all the dead and dark things. So child of God, on this Easter Sunday morning, Child of God, listen to me. Have no fear. Have no fear. Find your courage in the resurrected man, Jesus. Do not be dismayed. Do not be discouraged. Do not fear like these women and the apostles did at first. Do not be anxious. What, as you look at your future, what death-like experience might be waiting for you? If you're righteous, if you're faithful, you know this might happen. What, what grave is out there? And it looks like it's calling your name. It's got your name over the door. What, what, is, what is out there? What death-like experience are you being called to endure for faithfulness? What darkness is ahead of you that, that you're so scared, really, to face it? You don't think, you know, if I do this, I'm not going to make it. I'm not going to come out the other side. And you're terrified at the thought of going that direction. Please hear this. Jesus has already been through it. Jesus has already been through the darkness. He's gone on ahead of you. What are you afraid of? Abandonment? Loss? Poverty? Shame? Grief? Torment? Embarrassment? Loneliness? Death itself? Jesus has already gone ahead of you. Jesus went through it ahead of you and he's picked up all the trophies and he's waiting for you on the other side. He came out and through rejoicing. So now you aren't alone. You aren't by yourself. You are sharing in his sufferings so that you can share in his life, so that you can share in the riches of his inheritance. And because of this, because we are united to the man who went into the grave and blew the back door out the other side, because he's been through it, because we're united to this man, we can have no fear. We can have nothing but courage and boldness. So put away your sins. Don't forget what Jesus has said. Follow Jesus. Remember your place in the story and that that story is all about victory. Let's give thanks. Father in heaven, we praise you and thank you again that Jesus, our Savior, has defeated and conquered death. And though we suffer and though we experience loneliness and abandonment and fear and consternation and confusion, we know that 
our Savior's done this for us and with us, and that He is beside us. So, Father, give us courage by Your Holy Spirit. Please give us this boldness that we may not fear in the day of trial. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.